Jesus will often say, okay, so you're doing this thing, that's good, you know, you continue to do that, but first you ought to do this other thing, and Jesus is setting priorities for his followers, and we want to study those priorities of Jesus so that our priorities may more and more look like his priorities, so a little more like Jesus, a little less like me. Today, we will hear Jesus say, you clean the outside of the cup, and that's great, that's good that you clean the outside of the cup, but first, clean the inside of the cup. That's the part you actually drink out of, right? And in this passage, the cup is a metaphor, metaphor for our inner selves, our hearts, that inner part of us that we seldom allow others to see, but that God always sees. So we're going to look at that passage together, and as I read these verses in Matthew 23, I need to warn you uh, that Jesus, as he speaks here, there's a, a phrase that he's going to say over and over again. So I want to talk about that right here at the beginning, and you'll see that as we go through. But over and over, Jesus will say here, Woe to you, teachers of the law. Your translation may say uh, scribes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And then he'll point out something that is hypocritical. And I want to talk about that a moment before I read the text, because you're going to hear Jesus say it about five times in the verses that I read. When he says, woe to you, that word woe, we don't use that word a whole lot. Usually we mean stop if we say woe, right? Slow down, whoa, kids are running in the church, whoa, right? That's not what Jesus means here. When he says woe, it's an expression of lament or of sadness, more like woe is me. Maybe you've heard it used that way before. But the term was used by Old Testament prophets, specifically by Isaiah and by Jeremiah, and they were mourning God's impending judgment. So they would say, woe to you, and then maybe name a city or a place. Woe to you, Moab. They would say, my heart cries for Moab because of God's impending judgment. That's kind of the way the Old Testament prophets would talk. And as we have gone through the book of Matthew, we've been looking at these times that Jesus sets priorities for us. Jesus thus far has been talking like a rabbi, like a teacher. He taught in the Sermon on the Mount. He tells these stories called parables, and it makes people think. And so we've looked at parables, and we looked at this teaching, and Jesus has been talking like a rabbi. But where we are now in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 23, Jesus goes full Old Testament prophet at this point, all right? He's not talking like a teacher. He's speaking like an Old Testament prophet, saying, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. I want to say just a word about that. Because some people think that that's the way Jesus always talks, that the Bible's always speaking in these very harsh, direct terms. Some of us have in our mind this idea of Jesus, that Jesus never talks that way, that there are other parts of the Bible, like the Old Testament prophets, that say, woe to you, you, you hypocrites. But we think Jesus is meek and mild, and he never talks that way. 
And so this passage should correct our understanding. If you think Jesus always talks this way, then you should read more of Matthew because it's actually very rare that Jesus ever talks this way. He doesn't really talk to his disciples this way. He doesn't speak this way to the crowds. He doesn't speak this way to the woman at the well or the woman caught in adultery. Jesus very rarely speaks this way. And he didn't begin speaking to these scribes and Pharisees that way. Jesus has been patiently interacting with these guys for years. And they will not hear him. They don't listen to what he has to say. And so Jesus becomes very direct with them at this point. Now, he didn't lead with this kind of language, but at this point, he becomes very direct and uses very strong language. You're going to hear Jesus use, if I just said these things Jesus said without telling you Jesus said, you might get mad at me that a preacher's talking that way. And if you think Jesus never talks this way, you need to know that he's going to use some very direct and strong language to try to reach this group that is very confident in themselves and very sure of themselves as he tries to shake them from trusting in themselves. So he's going to say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He's using this strong language. And notice who he's talking to, these these Pharisees, these scribes. Most folks today think Pharisees were bad guys because we've been influenced by the Scripture. And Jesus is certainly critical of these folks. But you need to understand as we come to the scripture that the people standing around hearing this exchange, the original audience that heard Jesus say these things, you need to understand they did not see the Pharisees and the scribes as bad guys. Okay? They saw Pharisees as the most holy the most devoted keepers of the Old Testament law. Everybody figured, well, they're in because they observe the law. You know, I don't know if I measure up, but I know those guys are in. And the scribes or the teachers of the law, folks saw those folks as the experts in the Old Testament law. So they didn't see them as bad folks. So these people Jesus is talking to are the most religious, the most biblically literate people of the day. So when you hear this, listen, here's our temptation. Here's why I want to say this before we read it. Because our temptation is to say, yeah, Jesus, give it to the Pharisees. right? Tell them, Jesus, all these hypocrites and stuff. Sometimes we do that, not understanding that Jesus is talking to church people right here, okay? (laughs) He's talking to the most holy. He's talking to the the people who are the most biblically literate. And so we need to hear, if we're going to accurately hear what Jesus has to say, we have to understand that Jesus is talking to church people here. That's important. Maybe you're here today and you think you don't like what some church people do. (laughs) I bet you don't have half the list Jesus does. Jesus hates what some church people do. And so if you came here unsure what you were going to hear and you're a little suspect because I've just told you there's going to be some strong direct language, you and Jesus may not be that far apart from one another. All right? 
So keep that in mind as we come to the text. And for those of us who are church people, we need to hear these critiques that Jesus makes of church people. We need to hear these warnings because it's those of us who desire to be holy. It's those of us who desire to walk in God's ways. It's those of us who know the word well that are going to be tempted to do these kinds of things. So if you are a church person, we need to be listening to these things closely. One other thought. We talked about woe. We talked about Pharisees and scribes, teachers of the law. The other thing Jesus says over and over again is, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. I want to say just a word about that because I used to think that hypocrites were people who do not practice what they preach. And that's an okay definition of hypocrites, people who don't practice what they preach. They preach one thing and actually practice another. I can see how that's hypocritical. But think about this with me. I, my, my views have changed a little bit, and I've run this by some of my non-Christian friends just to say, hey, do you feel like I'm giving Christians a pass here, or do you understand what I'm saying? And they're like, you know, I think I understand what you're saying. And here's how my view has changed. As Christian people... We never practice what we preach. And here's what I mean by that. If I am preaching the glories of God and the perfections of his law, I'm never going to live up to that. I always fall short of that. We always fall short of the glory of God and the perfection of the law. So as Christians, on one hand, we never practice what we preach. We're never going to live up to that standard. And so when I hear hypocrites, and, and, uh, and as I've looked at how Jesus is using the term, this is what he seems to be critiquing. He's critiquing a conscious insincerity, right? He's preaching against, and he's speaking against, I show you one thing on the outside, when inside I know the reality is something totally different, right? That's different than not quite living up to what I preach, right? There's more dishonesty in that. There's a dishonesty in acting like I'm better than what I really am, and that's what Jesus is warning against here when he talks about hypocrites. So let's come to the text now with all of that in mind, and let's listen for these warnings and listen to what Jesus has to say. I'm in Matthew chapter 23. I'll begin reading in verse 13. Hear now the words of Christ Jesus. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Pray. Heavenly Father, these are hard words for us to hear. When we think of them applied to another, sometimes we can cheer them on. When we think of them set of our own hearts, we get defensive. We draw distinctions. We put up guards. Father, I pray that you would be with us now and that you would be here by your spirit. And that church people, as church people and followers of Jesus, we would hear the words of Jesus. And listen to his warnings that church people face. For my friends who are here that are not church people, I pray that they would be drawn to Jesus. That his word would resonate with them. And that you would use his honesty, his sincerity, even his directness to draw them to himself. And Father, I pray that you'd be willing to do all this even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I told you it was pretty strong and direct, right? He says some pretty strong and direct things. Did you hear the warnings that Jesus has for church people, his critique, the way we can often get off the right path? I'm going to look at just three of them. He has lots in here. But let's look at just three together. The first one is this. If you have your hand out, you see church people can lead others astray. That's the first thing I see here. Church people can lead others astray. I see that in verses 13 through 15, where Jesus says, You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves don't enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. And then he has that phrase again, Woe to you, teachers of law, Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Strong words from Jesus. What is it that he's condemning exactly? We need to understand that. And the first thing you need to understand, Jesus is not condemning the making of converts, okay? Jesus is not condemning that. In fact, Jesus commands that. He talks about his people being salt and light at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. At the very end, in Matthew 28, he says that all authority has been invested in him as the resurrected Christ. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. 
So Jesus is not condemning the making of converts, nor is he condemning teaching people to obey the law. In fact, Jesus commands that too. At the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he says that not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away, that those who teach others to obey the law will be great in the kingdom, that those who teach people to not worry about the law will be least in the kingdom. And then right there at the end of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 28, after he says, go make disciples of all nations, what does he say? Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So Jesus is not condemning the making of converts, nor is he condemning teaching people to follow the law. It's the safe path. It's the way God designed us to live. And Jesus is not condemning that. So what is Jesus condemning here? Well, our good friend, the Apostle Paul, helps us with this because the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. And in Romans 10, he writes about where they go astray. He writes a lot of places, but in Romans 10 specifically, he says, I have this heart for my own people. My heart cries out for them. Almost that woe, right? My heart cries out for them. He says, because I know they are zealous for God. I know they are zealous for the law, and we can see that here in these folks. But the Apostle Paul says they're zealous for God, but they missed it because they sought to establish a righteousness of their own instead of accepting the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You can read that lots of places in Paul's writing, Romans 10, verses 1 through 4. In particular, he says this, that that's what's wrong. That's what these guys are missing. That they miss the fact that Christ is our righteousness, that our righteousness comes from God, and they tried to establish their own righteousness. That they had missed the fact that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21, also the Apostle Paul writing. That we fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3 says. And that it's when we're in Christ who lived the life that I should have lived and died the death I should have died for my disobedience. That that's how I made right with God, that his righteousness is credited to me. And that I'm accepted as beloved by the Father because of the work of the Son. These folks tried to establish their own righteousness. And Jesus says, if you're trusting in yourself and you're being good enough that you are not getting into the kingdom, and if you are making converts and teaching them to trust in themselves, then you have made them twice as much a son of hell as they were before, because at least before they knew they were lost, but now they think they're on the right track. And they don't listen to Jesus just as these folks are not listening to him. I wonder, do we ever do things like that? Church people can lead folks astray, can't we? Oh, now we will say we are saved by admitting that we are sinful and trusting in Jesus, and that is true. But then we often switch from the gospel to a message of, okay, now that you've gotten the gospel, now you need to do all this stuff. 
And by talking about that all the time without rooting it in the gospel, we can often send the message and lead people to believe that our being right with God depends on our doing the right stuff. We often do this, and I'm going to go grammar on you, so don't glaze over. Just stick with me, right? We often do this when we teach the imperatives of Scripture, the commands, without preaching the indicatives, right? When we don't preach what is true. So we've learned to say it like this. If we just talk about what to do and never talk about what is true, then we can lead people astray. Parents, we've got to be careful about this with our kids, If you find yourself always quoting a command to them, showing them where they have fallen short and gotten things wrong, if that's what we're always quoting, and we're not ever just basking in the goodness of the gospel, we can lead them to believe that their right standing with God depends on their doing the right things. We can do it in Sunday school classes. As 21st century pragmatic Americans, we are so quick to run to just tell me what to do that we often read over the parts of the text that that actually give us the power to do what God calls us to do. And when we do that, when we just emphasize what to do, and we do that over and over again, we're only taking people to one of two places. If we keep saying, here's the standard and you're not meeting it, and that's, that's the predominant theme. And, it, and it's hard because we can point to a Bible verse that says, here's what you do, you're not doing it, and so you need to do that. Just like these folks could point to a Bible verse. When we do that over and over again, it leads people to one of two places. You have people like my wife who's really on to herself and like processes things and thinks about stuff and she knows she's not meeting the standard and it just leads to self-pity and to depression and just being in a pit. I know I don't measure up. You don't have to remind me again. And they tend to get, these folks tend to get real quiet and just kind of begin to fade away and maybe stop coming to church altogether unless they're married to a person like me. And people like me are the under kind of people. And where they go is not self-pity, but self-righteousness, right? Here's the standard, and because I'm not onto myself and don't process well like she does, I'm meeting the standard, and I'm sort of wondering why you're not meeting the standard, because I seem to be meeting it, and these other folks are, and you seem to keep falling short. So what's the problem with that? And it leads to this self-righteousness. We don't want to lead people to self-righteousness, nor do we want to lead them to self-pity. We want to continue to lead people to Jesus, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, the power of his resurrection, his spirit living in us is the only thing that empowers us to do the things that the Bible calls us to do. John 15 and verse 5, Jesus said it, right? He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me, your translation may say abides in me. We have to stay connected to Jesus. If we're connected to him, then you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. 
So we have to stay connected to Jesus and the good news of the gospel. And if we're not careful, we can actually teach the Bible without teaching the gospel. That's on our website. And somebody wrote in recently and said, is that a typographical error? Because you say that you can teach the Bible without teaching the gospel. Is that supposed to be you cannot teach the Bible without teaching the gospel? I'm like, no. What I mean is what these folks are doing. You can teach the Bible, the do's and don'ts, the commands, and I have a verse for every one of them, without teaching the gospel. That is possible and that's what Jesus critiques here. So let's commit people, let's commit to teach people what to do. But let's always root those commands in the person and work of Jesus. Let's always connect those commands to the power of the gospel that we only find in the risen Christ. And if you look in the text, I promise you, whenever you find a command, there will be an indicative right there next to it. We talked about Matthew 28, right? Go make disciples, baptize, teach. What does he say right before night? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, the resurrected Christ says. That's how we're able to go make disciples and baptize and teach. And then what does he say last? And lo, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. What is true drives what we do. When we don't teach that way, Church people can lead folks astray. Number two, church people can do spiritual stuff and not love their neighbor well. What? Yeah, it's true. Church people can do spiritual stuff and not love their neighbor well. Look and see how the Pharisees did it. He talks about it there in verse 23 where he says, You give a tenth of your mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. He says, You should have done the former. It's okay to tithe without neglecting the latter. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. To understand what's going on here, you need to know that the Old Testament law required that you tithe your crops. This was an agrarian society, and so 10% of whatever God gave you, you gave to the church. And that's what the priests ate, 10%, and there was food to give poor people during religious festivals. And so uh, that was the, the law. And some people argued that you didn't have to tithe on your mint and dill and cumin because those were arom aromatic plants and they were used for medicine, so they're not really crops so that you don't have to tithe them. Some folks said, well, now hold on now. You use cumin and dill not just as an aroma in your house, but you also use that to season food. So it, it does, some rabbis said, that does need to be tithed. So the Pharisees tithed even the disputable things to be sure that they followed the law. They even tithed food they got from other people just in case the other person had not tithed. They made sure to get all the details right, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law. Jesus' justice, mercy, faithfulness. Remember last week when we looked at the greatest command, we said rabbis would have this debate about which one of the commands was weightier, which one was more important. And Jesus is saying, look, you're doing the light things, and you're neglecting the more important things. He says it again. If you keep reading, he says, to avoid uncleanliness, when he talks about this straining out a gnat to swallow a camel, 
You had to avoid dead things to remain clean. So if a bug flew into your cup and it died and you drank it, then you became unclean. So the rabbis made a rule, because it was hard to keep gnats out of things if you live in a tent and live in a society like this one. So they made a rule that anything smaller than a lentil, a little bean, a little piece of rice, that anything smaller than that didn't count. But the Pharisees wanted to be sure they went above and beyond, and so they only drank things through a strainer to be sure that there were no gnats in there. And Jesus says, look, you're so concerned with issues as small as swallowing a gnat, but actually you're swallowing a whole camel, the largest land animal that they saw, because you neglect the, ma- the, 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 the weightier matters of the law. And then he mentions just, you know, justice, mercy, faithfulness. He doesn't get into a lot of specifics here. And one of the reasons he doesn't is because these guys knew the Old Testament law. They knew what justice required. They knew what mercy required. They knew what faithfulness required. And Jesus didn't have to say as much to them. Let me give you a little taste just for us. There are a lot of places we could look. Amos, Jeremiah. I'm going to look at Isaiah 1 with you. This is the kind of thing that Jesus is referring to, and it gives us more insight into what Jesus is telling them they need to care more about. In Isaiah 1, in verse 11, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he's speaking to God's people, and this is what he says. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of goats and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Let me just stop right there. When he says, who has asked this of you, the answer to that is, well, you did, God. <laughs> You're the one that told us to make these sacrifices. We're just doing what you called us to do. And God's saying, are you? <laughs> are you doing what I called you to do? Watch, he keeps going. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. This is God speaking to people, okay? When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Why is God doing this? He tells them, your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Jesus is reminding them, yes, it's important to love God well. That's the greatest command. But there's another command like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is saying, in your zeal to comply with the law of God, to love him well, you're neglecting your neighbor. Think of some of the stories Jesus told when a scribe asked him who is my neighbor he told the story of the good samaritan where the good guys the priest the levite walk by and don't help the man who's injured because they want to if he's dead and they touch him they would be unclean and they can't go in the temple they want to do god's stuff and so they neglect this man 
And it's the good Samaritan who binds up his wounds and takes him to a place that he can be cared for. And then Jesus asks, who was a, a good neighbor to this man? And they said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. How are we doing with that? You're here at church today. You're singing praises to God. We've been through the confession. We're quoting the scripture. All those things are good. How are you doing with loving your neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Anyone in need that I run across, that I'm around. How are you doing encouraging the oppressed, as God says in Isaiah 1? How are you doing with pleading the cause of orphans or widows? Or with the story of the Good Samaritan, how are you doing with loving those who are different from you? It's hard to love people different from us. That's the whole point of the story of the Good Samaritan. They're still your neighbor. People who have different political views, they're hard to love sometimes. People who disagree with us on whether or not to be vaccinated or whether or not to wear a mask, it's hard to love people that think differently than us sometimes. Yet we're called, Jesus says, not to neglect the former. It is still good to walk in the ways of God, but also we should love our neighbor. And not let very minor things keep us from doing so. Because church people can do a lot of spiritual stuff and not love their neighbor well. And Jesus is very critical of that. Number three. Church people can keep up appearances and neglect our own hearts. What? Believe it or not, church people can keep up appearances and ignore our own hearts. You see Jesus talk about it there in verses 25 to 28 when he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. And then there's another image. Woe to you, teachers of the law. Pharisees, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead man's bones, and everything unclean in the same way on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. What's going on here? Well, Jesus uses these two images. He says, number one, you clean the outside of the cup because that's what people see, and that's a good thing. But he says you need to also clean the inside of the cup because it's dirty. And that's the more important part because you're actually drinking out of that part. So you need to give that cup part of the cup some attention as well. The second image is whitewashed tombs. There was a tradition every spring they would whitewash the tombs so that they really stood out to warn those who were coming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast to avoid these unclean tombs because if you touched them, you would become unclean and not be able to go to the feast. Some rabbis said if your shadow touched them, then you were close enough that you were unclean. And so they whitewashed these tombs. And Jesus is saying, you're like those whitewashed tombs. You look really good on the outside, but inside you're full of death. You're full of bones. You're full of everything unclean. 
As church people, we can be like that, can't we? On the outside, we act like we have it all together. From our social media posts, you'd think that we have the perfect marriage, that I have the perfect children, that I live in the perfect home, the perfect yard, that I eat all this great stuff and take all these wonderful trips. We see each other and we say, how are you? And we say, I'm fine. Good. How are you? I'm fine. I'm good. When on the inside, we're not fine. We're not good. Listen, I'm not saying that you should tell all the details of all of your life to whoever asks how you're doing. But what I am saying is this. There ought to be somebody that you're telling those things to. There ought to be somebody that you are honest with and you go into the details. And if we're going to be honest, maybe sometimes without going into details, we need to say something other than I'm fine, I'm good, when I'm actually not. Jesus says we can't just keep showing everyone the clean outside of our cup while we keep drinking out of a dirty cup or showing everyone a pristine white tombstone while on the inside we are dying. Who do you open up to about your struggles? If you are a member of this church, I hope you are open and honest with your shepherd about things. They should contact you regularly and say, what can I pray for for you? And if you don't know who your shepherd is, ask me and I'll find out. But that's an opportunity for you to share some of what's going on so that that person can pray with and for you. Perhaps even give wise counsel or refer you to others who have been through the same thing. So that you're not so alone along the way. If you're married, I hope your spouse is someone you can talk to about these things. If you're single, I hope you have a trusted friend. If you're in a community group, I hope that's a place that you can talk about your struggles. If you're in a discipleship group, I hope that's a place you can talk about your struggles. And if you're in one of those groups and somebody talks about their struggles, don't treat them like they have leprosy or a disease, or the plague, we used to say. Now I guess we would say, don't treat them like they've got COVID and quarantine them. That's what they should do. Move closer to them. Pray for them. Send them a text and follow up. The church should be a place that we can share our brokenness. We all fall short. We all have places we need to grow. Who do you open up to about that? Do you even know what your struggles are? Because if you really think you're fine and you really think you're good and that you're hitting all the standard of the law and the glories of God, you're like these guys. Who said you're a Pharisee? That's exactly right. And you're right where these guys are. We all have something that we're struggling with, that we're growing in, and someone needs to know about it. 
Jesus hates it when church people keep up appearances on the outside and are not honest about what goes on on the inside. If you're here today and you're skeptical of church people, man, I get it. Jesus is critical of church people too. We are a broken and messed up bunch. We always fall short of the standard and we will never meet it until Jesus comes back. But I want you to know, Jesus calls us to be honest about that. So don't look down on a church person who admits that they fall short. That they don't practice what they preach. Because if they're honest about that, they're doing what Jesus has asked them to do. And as Christians, we believe that God loves us as broken and messed up people. We can come to him, but we also believe that God loves us too much to leave us in our brokenness and our mess. And the scripture promises in places like Philippians 1 and verse 6 that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. There's another part. (laughs) Until the day of Christ Jesus. Sometimes I want it to happen faster than that. But that's the deadline. We believe, verses like Romans 8, that God is using all things for our good to make us less like me and more like Jesus, as Lee sang about this morning. Wouldn't you like to be a part of a group like that? Wouldn't you want that for your family? Wouldn't you want to be a part of a community who struggles and is honest about struggling, but is improving and will improve, not because we're good enough or smart enough, but because our God is good enough and faithful enough to his people. I invite you to come and find out more about Redeemer Church. Church folks, let's not be stumbling blocks to people coming to Jesus. Let's certainly not lead them astray and lead them to depend on themselves and their own strength that they're hoping is just in being disciplined enough and organizing their life better when their only hope is in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Let's keep doing spiritual stuff well and keep improving in that, but let's also work on loving our neighbor well. Let's be honest that we struggle, that we don't have it all together. And let's do that even as we point people to the only hope any person can have, the perfect life of Jesus, credited to us who believe in him for salvation, and that hope of the sure growth that God produces in those who abide in him, and those who remain in him. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these are hard words. I pray that you would help us to hear them where they are applicable. I pray that you would help us to walk in your ways and to be honest about the ways that we don't. I pray that you would make Redeemer Church the kind of place that is pleasing to you, that point people to you, the kind of place that's honest about you. The kind of place where the aroma of Christ grows more and more. And where our aroma is less and less. Please come and do that. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.